Good morning, those listening to on, on CD, we are, you're gonna have a little bit of a lag before we actually get started, because we're testing out our video. So just bear with us. Good morning. Welcome to this time of worship at Old Oak Bible Church. My name is Steve Barbie. I'm one of the pastors here at Old Oak. And it is May, and a happy new month to you. We rejoice that each morning God's mercies are new, and yet still God does not change. He remains faithful, gracious, all-powerful, and almighty. We miss you as still being our time of part. As you can see, we're still recording our sermons. We're not all here together again. We long for this place to be filled up, filled with smiles. We're not sure what that will mean yet or what it will look like and when it will be. Uh, so we are asking the Lord for patience and wisdom, and we long to be back together again. We hope that you found our worship guide on our website, uh, oldoakbiblechurch.org, or on our Facebook page. That'll guide you through just worshiping at home with different music and songs and scripture readings and even a short guide to today's sermon. If you want to know more about Old Oak Bible Church, you can check out our website, oldoakbiblechurch.org. Uh, you can listen to past sermons. There you can also find ways to give financially. Uh, we're praying that even in a uh, tough time, we can still be generous and cheerful givers and sustain the work of the ministry here. And we are going to do our best to continue just to dive into God's word together, not a substitute for everything that would be in person, but just making most of the opportunity we have and thanking God for the technology he's given to us. So hopefully you have a Bible at home, and if you don't, we'd love to send one to you. And so we're going to pray before we get started, and then we'll dive right into God's word. So let's pray together. All good and all glorious God, we praise you, Lord, that today you remain still faithful and good and sovereign and wise and mighty and holy and kind and caring. And God, we want to draw near to you today. We confess, Lord, that each day we do not draw near to you as we ought, but we thank you that you have made a way back to yourself, reconciling us to yourself, making peace with you by the blood of the cross uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to know Jesus today, and we want to proclaim your word faithfully and boldly. We want to live it out. And we pray, God, as we do this, you would, you would bless those who hear, and you would well up in our hearts to be more like Christ. And we pray that you would do the same around our community in a dark time, that you would give the hope of the gospel and give relief and mercy and draw people to yourself we pray you do so even through the ministry of Grace Church, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, right in Middlebrook Heights. We pray you do so around the world in a place like Iran, where COVID-19 is uh, spread there, but the gospel is also spread there. So continue to advance your word in this place and do so in our hearts. Rule over our hearts, conquer every rebel power, own it all, and reign supreme. Uh, God, we praise you in this time and devote this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the Psalms, and we titled it Drawing Near to God in the Psalms. And we understand that ultimately it's Jesus who makes drawing near to God possible. 
When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was torn from top to bottom. This signals that those who are united to Jesus, this great final high priest, this perfect and final sacrifice to sin, now have access to the presence of God. And so what do we do? Well, Hebrews 4.16 says, Knowing this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So what we've been doing over the last couple weeks is drawing near to God through the Psalms, an entire book of God-inspired prayers and praises, prayers that Jesus prayed himself. So we started last week looking at Psalm 16. We said that this psalm teaches us how to draw near to God by finding our all in him. We said also when we really do that, we discover that finding our all in God is actually the fullest way to live. That's the main point from last week. It's going to continue to be the main point this week as we wrap up Psalm 16. And finding our all in God being the fullest way to live, we said that that realization doesn't come naturally to us. You know, ever since Eden, we've convinced ourselves that if we are going to be happy, then we're going to have to find happiness on our own. That if we're going to be happy, then happiness can't come from God. It can't come from following God who is withholding and restricting on our happiness. No, we have to pursue it ourselves. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that that is a lie. Yes, we follow God. We worship God because it's the right thing to do. It's what we ought to do. God is glorious and worthy and deserving of our worship and praise. Nothing and no one else is. But when we truly worship God and follow him and walk after him, we find that that is a delightful way to live and in the most delightful way to live. I shared a quote from Eric Little last week, the Scottish runner who ran in the 1924 Olympics and was later a missionary to China. Uh, This week, I want you to listen to the words of George Whitfield. He's the British evangelist who is one of the main preachers of the First Great Awakening in the 18th century. He writes this, As it is an honorable, so it is a pleasing thing to walk with God. The wisest of men has told us that wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths peace. And I remember pious Mr. Henry, when he was about to expire, said to a friend, you have heard many men's dying words and these are mine. A life spent in communion with God is the pleasantest life in the world. I am sure I can set my seal to this is true. Indeed, I have been listed under Jesus' banner only for a few years, but I have enjoyed more solid pleasure in one moment's communion with my God than I should or could have enjoyed in the ways of sin, though I had continued to have gone on in them for thousands of years. We draw near to God by finding our all in God, and that is the fullest way to live. This is George Whitfield's experience. This is Eric Little's experience. And they both echo David's experience in Psalm 16. So if you have a Bible, find Psalm 16 again. We're going to read it one more time as we get started diving into God's word. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, 
for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Remember that Psalm 16 is first a prayer. It's a really short prayer, but it's an honest prayer at that. David starts with the prayer, Preserve me, O God. So whatever situation David was in, we don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it prompted him to pray this prayer, to cry out to God, and then it led him to consider, all right, why do I pray to God in the first place? Why do I seek help from the Lord? Why is it do I seek God to preserve me? Well, the umbrella answer that we've given, that this whole psalm has given, is that David finds his all in God. And what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to find our all in God? Well, that's what we began to answer last week, covering the first four verses. And we gave the first four answers to what it means to find our all in God. It means that God is our refuge, that God is our Lord, that God is our good, that God shapes our heart and life. And we're going to wrap up the psalm today giving three final answers Uh, or really the fifth, sixth, and seventh answer to what it means to find our all in God. So answer number five, and the first one we're covering today, God being our all means that God is our contentment. God is our contentment. We see this in verses five and six. God is our contentment. Ours is a discontented age. You know, certain song lyrics capture this well. You know, the, the band Queen famously sung, I want it all and I want it now. Nirvana, the band, uh, commented on the spirit of the age. They said, here we are now, entertain us. Bruno Mars more recently said pretty boldly, I want to be a billionaire so bleeping bad. Buy me all the things I never had. Ours is a discontented age. And so here, this first point, God is our contentment. We barely know what contentment looks like. So maybe the best way we could start to define what contentment is is by defining it against discontentment. Because discontentment is just what we're more familiar with. Discontent is the default tune of our hearts. There's always something that we don't have, but we want. And there's always something that we have, but we don't want. And that's what fills our head. That's what bothers us endlessly. That's what keeps us up at night. That's what can make us bitter. That's what leads to self-pity. That's what can lead to anger. That's what leads to just sort of giving up and resigning and disengaging. We are a discontented people. And this isn't a new thing. 
This goes all the way back, and I mean all the way back to the very beginning. Somehow in the very beginning, the first people got convinced that paradise with God himself was not enough. James chapter 4 asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's because your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Discontent is the fuel and source of much of our sin. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Oh, I know, it's, it's finally getting that thing you've wanted for such a long time. That's got to be the solution. It's finally getting rid of the thing that you haven't wanted for a really long time. Well, God occasionally allows that to happen. God, hear, God is kind. He's gracious. He hears our honest and sincere requests to him. But you know as well as I do that if, even if when we get something that we've always wanted or get rid of the thing that we haven't wanted for a long time, even if that happens, something's just going to take its place. Something else is going to take its place, and we will be back to square one of discontentment all over again. So what is the solution? David offers us still a more excellent way. Look at verses 5 and 6 again in Psalm 16. David writes, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see these verses as a whole, and David uses a lot of imagery and analogies in these verses. So we see portion and cup and lot and lines and inheritance. And what do all these mean? Now, some see portion and cup as referring to something like a meal. You know, the Lord is David's nourishment, which is true. But I think on the whole, all of these images and analogies refer to allotment of land. And you can kind of see that when you... Look at it a little closely. So we remember when the Israelites finally entered the promised land of Canaan, Moses in the Pentateuch devotes a good chunk of text writing about our, what tribe and what family gets what certain land. And so what does David's allotment look like? What has he received? It's not a certain amount of wealth or land or prosperity. No, David's portion and cup and inheritance is the Lord. But I think, again, this alludes a little bit even to Israel's allotment of land. So when God was divvying out land for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, he had special provision for the tribe of Levi, the tribe that served as a priest. He told the tribe of Levi, guys, you're not going to receive any land. And you, we think, all right, so that's the special provision. We don't get anything. Oh, no. Well, God told the tribe of Levi, you won't receive any land because I am your inheritance. See, the thing is, God intended all of his people to have that perspective. And David has that perspective here. His inheritance is the Lord. And notice how easy would it have been for David and for us, for that matter, to take verse 5 and maybe, you know, David had his little own journaling Bible. Not really, but we can imagine that he might have had just this journaling Bible and he writes verse 5. He says, the Lord is my portion and cup. And then he looks back at it and he says, well, hold on, let me edit this a little bit. 
And after the Lord, he, above it, he puts a little downward arrow and parentheses. So it says, the Lord and, um, well, and my kingship and, uh, well, and my several wives and my children. And I should probably throw my palace in there as well. And I should throw my reputation. So there, that's better. The Lord and my kingdom and my several wives, my children, my palace and my reputation is my chosen portion and my cup. No, no, that's not what he writes. He says, the Lord, there is no parentheses after that. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And I think too, it's worth clarifying. God isn't some kind of consolation prize either for David. You might remember when you were a kid, you took part of some competition, some sort of race or game, and you worked really hard to win, and you took pride in winning, you felt the rush and joy of winning, and then you get to the winner's circle, and you go to the person who's overseeing the competition, whether it's a parent or a coach or a teacher, and you ask him or her, okay, what did I win? Uh, and then they tell you, uh, you kind of catch them by surprise, they say, well, um, well, let me tell you, you get the satisfaction of winning. That is your prize. Well, then you say, well, that stinks. <laughs> That's not what I wanted. I, it's not that David here loses everything that he really wants, and then he shrugs his shoulders and says, well, but you know, at least I still have God. No, David looks at all of his life, and he chooses to say, I have God. <laughs> I have God. What, what else is better? I have God. He is mine. That is amazing. That is beautiful. He is blown away and he is content. Now, this is great. Most of us acknowledge that this is how we should live. Most of us acknowledge that being content in the Lord is the right thing to do. But boy, actually living this out is like trying to nail jello to a wall. So how do we grow in this? I think it's worth thinking about this some. How do we grow in being content in the Lord? There's a lot we can say, but just briefly, just from David's life and this psalm in particular, God can grow us finding contentment in him, I think, in three broad steps. First, we need to see everything else besides God for what it really is. First step is we need to see everything else besides God for what it really is. So keep in mind what David just said in verse 4, Psalm 16. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. David knows where anything else besides God, if he gives his life to that, he knows where it will lead. And David knows that God has been gracious to give him good gifts. But finding your contentment, finding your all in anything besides God leads to sorrow. So we have to see everything else for what it is. We have to see good things as good gifts from the Lord, but not ultimate things to invest our entire lives in, to build our entire happiness and meaning on. That leads to corrupted hearts. That leads to sorrow. We have to see everything else for what it truly is. And you know, most of us, that makes sense in our heads. Most of us have to learn that by experience. Most of us have to learn that by experience. I think of myself as one who's Preparing for marriage, I have to learn this by experience. I have to see marriage and a wife as a gift. The gifts from God. 
that leads me to praise God more, that leads me to love the gift better, to steward it more, to steward it more responsibly. We have to learn what everything truly is besides God. And we have to learn this by experience. David himself did. David witnessed firsthand where idolatry led. He lived among the pagan Philistines for a couple of years. He witnessed firsthand himself. He indulged in sin for a period of his life, knowing where it led. His son Solomon had to learn this by experience, that nothing else besides God would give him contentment and satisfaction and rest. Even Paul as a Christian wrote to the Philippians that he had to learn how to be content in Christ. So we grow in finding contentment in God, first by seeing everything else for what it is. Second, we grow by seeing all of life coming from the hand of our good and sovereign Father. See all of life coming from the hand of a good and sovereign Father. David writes of God in verse 5. You see that there? You hold my lot. So we can rest content in God, knowing that all of our life is from a good and wise and caring Father who knows what we need, even before we ask, who knows how to give good gifts to those who ask, and knows what is a good gift for us better than we do. A good and wise Father who withholds no good thing to those who love him. A good and wise Father whose goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Friends, the hands that orchestrate your life, that holds you together, that sustain you and protect you and hold you, those hands are the hands that were pierced with nails for your sin. That you are now reconciled to God, at peace with him forever. All of life coming from a good and wise and sovereign God. So just think. A good and wise and caring God holds your lot. Christian, even during COVID-19. And all that it does to threaten the stability of our health, all that it does to threaten the stability of our personal finances, all that it does to threaten the stability of the prosperity of our country. God holds our lot. We think, just look back. Look back at your life. Look and see God's care for your life in leading you to Christ in the first place. All that he did to do that. Look at God's care for your life in protecting you from all the times you were really stupid. Look at God's care for your life in working for your good when you couldn't see what he was doing. God holds our lot. We can rest content in him because he does that all the time no matter what. So we grow in contentment in the Lord by seeing everything else for what it is, seeing all of life coming from God's hand, and thirdly, seeing all that we have in God himself. Seeing all that we have in God himself. You see, David's beautiful inheritance is God. So each day we should plead with the Lord that by his spirit, working through his word, that he would show us the unsurpassing, incomparable beauty of Christ. This is what God called the apostle Paul to preach. He said, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus. This is what David writes about in Psalm 27, that he longs to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I don't know if you've been to Niagara Falls. Uh, it's a great place, uh, an amazing place. 
But one of the regular criticisms of Niagara Falls is how commercialized it is. And that's been a criticism from er very early on when Niagara Falls was discovered by Western settlers. They built up the commercial uh, sites around it so that now you can go to Niagara Falls and you can go to the casinos, you can go to the water parks, you can go to the restaurants, and you can never look at the falls themselves. And so when the United States was developing and preserving the rest of the national parks, they wanted to keep them from distractions. They wanted people to go and see what actually makes them beautiful. Look on what is actually beautiful. Don't get distracted. See all that we have in God himself. This is our contentment. And when we can't feel this, when we have a hard time doing this, of course we will. We pray this down and ask for God's help. And may I suggest, too, singing this down. I should have sang this morning, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou my inheritance, now and always. God is our contentment. That's what it means for him to be our all. The next answer look, comes from verses 7 and 8. God being our all means also that God is our focus. God is our focus. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. It says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David blesses the Lord or praises him and he sets the Lord before him. In other words, he focuses his praise, his prayer, his devotion, his heart on God. On God who is his counselor, on God who is his strength. So let's take verse 7 first. So here, David focuses on the Lord who is his counselor or his teacher. And what can we say about this? Well, I think simply we could say, first of all, if we think about it, David focusing on God as his counselor implies that David recognized that he needed counsel. It implies that David recognized that he was not wise in his own eyes. And time and time again, we see this in David's life, even when, at points when David didn't realize that he needed God's counsel. God intervened and spoke to him. So one time, David's on the run for his life from, the king, from King Saul, the Saul, the king that went before him. And he finds Saul in a cave, lying, sleeping there. This is a golden opportunity to finally end the problem that's been bugging David for years. And he has a sword in his hand, and God interrupts, intervenes, pricks his heart, and gives him counsel and says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. David sins with Bathsheba, killing her husband, Uriah, not realizing that he sins. God intervenes sends the prophet Nathan to give him his counsel. And Nathan tells this ornate and involved story that David buys into, and then Nathan flips the switch and says, David, you are the man. You are guilty. God's counsel. David recognizes he needs it. I don't know if you, maybe if you've ever seen a t-ball game uh, or play t-ball yourself. If you don't know t-ball, t-ball is, is baseball, but the ball is, is set up just on a stand at home plate. And it's usually played by four and five-year-olds. Uh, so if you've seen a t-ball game, you know that these are chaotic affairs already. You know that when, you know, 
little kids hit the ball, they're going to go in the wrong direction. They're going to run to third base instead of first base. You got Johnny in right field picking his nose. You got Sandy at shortstop, you know, making a little sandcastle out of the dirt. And that's with the coaches in place. Now imagine if these little four and five-year-olds went all Lord of the Flies on everybody and said, we don't need no stinking coaches. We're going to play t-ball by ourselves." And imagine the bedlam and chaos that would ensue then. David recognizes that he needs counsel. He is not wise in his own eyes. And the next question we might logically ask, okay, how does God give counsel? If David needs it from God, how does God give counsel? Christian, you know this. Christian, you know this. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God provides counsel through his written word, scriptures. So David knows he needs counsel from God, and God provides counsel in the word. So what does David do? David gives himself over to hear, to listen to, to treasure, to live out, and to focus on God's counsel that he gives in his word. Just a couple psalms later, Psalm 19, David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. Oh, friend, is God your counselor? Put it another way. Do you give yourself to hear and treasure and focus on God's word like this? Christian, this is what we are called to Christian, we can do this. We could do this even greater than David did, believe it or not. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We have the complete canon of Scripture. Jesus has saved us. Listen, God is gracious. You know, God doesn't save us, save us based on however much of the Bible that we know, however well we can quote verses. That's not how God saves us. No, God saved us by grace. The work is done. Jesus paid it all. But that should make us want to follow the one who saves us, to hear his voice all the time. After all, as we've been saying in Psalm 16, God is our refuge, God is our Lord, God is our good. If God is our all, truly we would want to hear from him. Now, if we don't focus in on God's word, we might, we might cloak that with the excuses of busyness. We might cloak that with the excuses of it's really hard. And both of those are in some measure legitimate. But at the end of the day, when we don't focus on God's word, give ourselves over to it, we communicate that we don't need it. I can't see any, way other, any other way around that. Because really, if, if you truly believe you needed God's counsel, if you truly believed it, then you'd hear it. Then you'd read it. And when you don't, it's just like prayerlessness. When you don't pray, you communicate, I'm doing fine on my own. When I don't read the Bible, I don't, I don't need that. That's all, that's, I can't see any other thing that's not at the base of it. 
How does this square with what Jesus said? Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Jesus was filled with the scriptures. He did all things in accordance with God's counsel. If Jesus did this, my goodness, how much more should Jesus' followers need to do this? Now I know we all feel convicted at this point. But more than making ourselves feel bad, just friends, know and remember the gift that it is to have counsel from God, God himself. That is a treasure. And just before we leave verse 7, because David goes into the next, to another step in verse 7, because when we do focus on God's counsel, when we hear it and treasure it and keep it, what's the result? What happens? Well, David continues, he says, in the night my heart also instructs me. So having focused on God's counsel, God shapes David's heart. So you you know this after a certain player has played uh, his sport under a certain coach for a long enough time, been through enough seasons with him, been through enough practices and training with a particular coach who is a great coach, that player is going to have certain techniques and movements and skills that are just natural and instinctive to him. Even if he wasn't that great of an athlete to begin with, if he has an exceptional coach, the coach can train him to do that. The same principle kind of works here. David gives himself over to focus on God's counsel so much that he starts to have God's wisdom and God's perspective and God's holiness and God's desires so that even in the night, he receives guidance from the Lord because his heart is filled with the word. The living embodiment of Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Focus on God, our counselor. That's verse 7. God is David's focus, though, still in verse 8. But in verse 8, David focuses on God, on God's presence, on God's strength, and finds stability. So David writes here, you see verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. So here is a deliberate, active pursuit and focus on God. I have set the Lord always before me. This reminds me some of the command to pray without ceasing. You've probably heard that explained, that that doesn't mean that we literally pray. That's all we do all the time. It means more that we sort of have a line of communication that's open with God all the time. Now, that's the explanation we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about our lack of prayer most of the time. Because that line of communication is a lot less open between us and God than we actually think that it is. I can't help but read David's words here, I have set the Lord always before me. I can't help but think we don't do that intentionally enough. I think of another one of David's psalms, Psalm 55. David writes, But I call to the Lord, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. That's not necessarily a prescription of what to do, but certainly it could be a good model. Evening, morning, and noon. 
setting aside specific times throughout our days to set aside everything and focus on God truly, heartfeltly, genuinely. Now, I know there will be days and things come up and we can't do this, but imagine if we, that marked most of our days, setting aside deliberate times to focus on God throughout our days. Then more of our days would be marked by this kind of pursuit David writes of here. I have set the Lord always before me. But we're not going to finally make it because of how well we focus and hold on to God. No. We will finally make it because God holds on to us. So David writes to close out verse 8, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Other psalms use that same description of God being at our right hand. Other psalms use it to say that God stands at our right hand as a kind of an advocate to um, an advocate for those who are condemned. He stands at our right hand also, other psalms say, as strength in battle. But either way, God is at our right hand and always is by our side and will not leave us. Did we think of Psalm 23? those great sweet lines we know. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We think of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, writing to his protege, Timothy. He says when he was put on trial that no one came to help him at his defense. But then Paul writes, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Focus on God who is our strength, who is always present. And friends, again, when we can't do this, you pray this down, you pray for help. And may I suggest again, singing this down. You sing those sweet lines, be still my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still my soul. The waves and winds shall know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Christian, are you shaken? Who is at your right hand and where is your focus? Go back to the beginning of Psalm 16 just to catch up to where we've been. Some situation David was in at the beginning of this psalm caused him to cry out, preserve me, O Lord. And that led him to consider why he prays to God in the first place, why he seeks help from the Lord in the first place. And just as a little side note, don't underestimate what God can work in us when we pray honestly and heartfeltly to him. Do that. So why does, God, why does David seek God in the first place? Well, the umbrella answer we've given is because David finds his all in God. To find his all in God means that God is David's refuge, his Lord, his good, that God shapes his heart and life, that God is David's contentment, that God is David's focus. As we wrap up the psalm this morning, we say God being our all means that God is our future. God is our future. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So having reflected on all that God is for him, David has joy and security now and forever. So that initial cry of preserve me at the beginning of Psalm 16, doesn't that seem like forever ago? Not just because both of these sermons have been long, but doesn't that seem as we come through Psalm 16, that initial cry is almost forgotten about. But boy, has that prayer been answered in a big way. God will preserve David both now and forever. This refugee has found refuge. The one who was shaken has found solid foundation that not even death can take away. And we look at verse 9 a little bit closer, and we see that it acts as a bridge from the present to the future. From David's present resolve and joy to his future life and joy. So as God's centeredness in his present will only become deeper and sweeter God present, God centeredness in his future. So let's start with David's present, David in the now. So look at verse 9. David talks about all the joy that he has right now in the Lord. He says, My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. All of that comes after that word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 9. So he says his present joy comes from all that he's just been talking about in Psalm 16. His present joy comes from God being his refuge, God being his Lord, God being his good, his contentment, his focus. Comes from all who God is for him right now. That gives him joy. But then we go on to verse 10. And look at how verse 10 starts. It starts with the word for, or you could substitute it, because. For or because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is more than just the grave. This is separation from God forever. So David rejoices because of all who God is now for him, all that he's been talking about in Psalm 16. But David rejoices in the present moment now also because all who God will be for him in his future. So David's future hope breaks into his present reality to give him joy. David's present in the now is joy. And we look at verse 11 a little bit. And David in the present is walking on the path of life with God as his all. The beginning of verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. This is the path David is on. Simple question, just to reflect on it. Are you on the path of life? Are you on the path of life? Did you know we are not by nature on this path? You just look at verse 11 a little more closely. It says, God makes known to us the path of life. We don't know what the path of life is on our own. God has to make it known. And so, by nature, we do not walk toward life. We walk toward death. Ephesians 2 puts it quite plainly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. By nature, we do not walk on the path of life. 
By nature, we walk on the path of death. Even verse 4 of this psalm says, By nature, we run after other gods. But God has made known to us the path of life. Are you on it? Are you on it? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Christian, you are on the path of life, and I urge you, stay on it. Stay on it. Walk in faithfulness. Trust the Lord. Keep his word. Focus on him. Know the sweetness of this path. Remember where it leads, and remember who God is right now. So this is David in the present. His present is joy because of all who God is for him now and all who God will be for him in his future. But what is David's future exactly? What is David's future? I think verse 11 is among the sweetest in all the Psalms. You see here, there is a destination to the path of life, and that is fullness of life. You see here that David's contentment now is God. But David will have God in full in his future. Oh, David has joy in God now, but fullness of joy in God in his future. David has God at his right hand right now, but there in his future, he will have God face to face. Oh, the lines have fallen for David in pleasant places now, but there are pleasures forevermore in his future. What an answered prayer. What an answered prayer to this refugee. God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Here is this inheritance and a home unlike any other. God is there. And my goodness, think about it. What a gift to rebels. What a gift to sinners. What grace to those who ran after other gods. And God plucked us out, sought us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God, and interposed his precious blood. Can it be that we who crucified the Son of God with our sin against him are now at peace with God forevermore? Can it be that we who spat in God's face are now at peace with God will see his face forever. What grace. On all this, all this we have to say comes only because of Jesus. You know the apostles Paul and Peter quote verse 10 of Psalm 16 as a proof that God promised the resurrection of the Messiah. You see, only in Jesus is verse 10 perfectly and literally true. For God to be the hope for our future, for God to be our hope at all, there must be a holy one that verse 10 talks about. There must be a holy one besides us. And that's Jesus. And united to Jesus, the holy one who died and rose from the dead, we too have hope for life with God beyond the grave forevermore. So then, the ultimate path of life that God has made known to us it's not some set of rules or principles. The ultimate path of life that God has made known to us is a person. It is Jesus Christ, his son. You want to know the path of life? 
know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The ultimate way God comes to our right hand is by his Son, who advocates for the guilty by paying what they owe, dying in their place, and giving them his perfect righteousness and holiness. And now he walks by our side. Jesus is the one who has won for us our inheritance in God so that we are said to be co-heirs with him. Our eternal life and joy and pleasure, Jesus says in John 17, is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. I'm telling you, do not settle for less than this. Do not settle for less. Hey, along the way, we get some good appetizers. We get some good gifts from God. But do not lose your appetite for the full feast. Keep walking after God on the path of life, knowing that Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, is with you now, and find your all in him. And there is joy along the way, sweet gifts. God is good and kind and beautiful right now. And you know as well as I do that there are sorrows and challenges along the way. We are going to struggle to have God and keep God as our all. We're going to struggle with that. But having been saved and justified and forgiven by God, with the promise that God will carry us home to himself, he will walk beside and one day, one day, God truly will be our all. Listen to among the closing words of the Bible. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, make it so that we find our all in you. We will need to learn this, God, by experience. <laughs> God, we are often foolish, often think we are wise in our own eyes. But God, we need you. We need you for everything. We thank you, Lord, that you are gracious. Please move in our hearts to pursue you, to pursue you in our contentment, to focus on you, to find our future in you. Help those who hear do this. Apply your word to our hearts and our lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.